Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic abuse, violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. For support, victims and survivors of domestic violence can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or visit www.thehotline.org. Adriana Vasco's hands shook as she lifted the bulky prison phone to her ear. She took a deep breath and told Detective Brian Heaney that she was scared. She was worried for her children and absolutely terrified that her short stint in jail would turn into a much longer sentence. What truly frightened her, though, was her violent ex, Dennis Godley. The detective agreed. Dennis was dangerous, and somehow he'd gotten the impression that Adriana was cooperating with the police. Apparently, he'd even told the authorities that he wished he hadn't left any witnesses alive. Adriana's blood ran cold. She knew deep down that Detective Heaney was the only one left who could protect her. But for that, she would have to tell him the truth. She swallowed and gritted her teeth. It was time to come clean. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we discussed the complicated relationship between Kenneth Stahl and Adriana Vasco, After Adriana told her boyfriend, Dennis Earl Godley, that Ken wanted his wife dead, she found herself on the most terrifying car ride of her life. This week, we'll talk about the shocking turn of events that claimed two lives. Then we'll follow the investigation into the murders and the dramatic trial that followed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Around 10 p.m. on November 20th, 1999, Tony Castillo headed out to his next stop of the evening, a cement plant just off the Ortega Highway. As he drove down the familiar road, he passed a silver sedan on the side of the road. The car had its high beams on and one of its doors wide open. Tony spotted a woman's foot dangling out in the night air. He'd worked security along the route long enough to know it was a popular spot for late-night romance. He assumed the people in the sedan were just having some fun. So he ignored the car and drove on to check a gate a few miles away. When he was done, he turned back around. The second time he passed the silver sedan, Tony slowed to a stop. The car was still idling in the same exact spot, with the same bare foot dangling out of the passenger side door. Something wasn't right. Tony exited his patrol car and cautiously approached. He peered into the open driver's side window and his heart skipped a beat. Inside were two figures slumped over each other. Neither was moving. Tony stumbled backward. His heart pounded as he fiddled with the dial on his radio. Two people were dead, and there was a possibility that the killer was still around. He contacted the Orange County Sheriff's Department and told them to come quick. When officers checked the vehicle for themselves, they discovered a middle-aged couple dressed for a night out on the town. The man sat upright in the driver's seat with his head drooping down against his chest. The woman was across his lap with one of her red heels still attached to her foot. The other shoe had fallen and laid on the pavement beside her, soaked with blood. After an autopsy, investigators determined the man had been shot three times in quick succession. He likely died within a few minutes of being struck. His companion, on the other hand, had been shot over six times in her chest, side, and head. Judging from the open door and bloody exterior, she'd done her best to escape. It was an unusual scene. Despite the brutality of the crime, the killer hadn't taken anything from the victims. The woman's diamond bracelet and gold necklace were still securely in place. Same with the pair's wallets, which were stuffed with cash and credit cards. Their IDs revealed them to be Ken and Carolyn Stahl, a couple from Huntington Beach. Detectives were at a loss. This clearly wasn't a highway robbery gone wrong. So why were Ken and Carolyn targeted? There weren't any stray bullet casings or fingerprints to offer any leads either. Without any physical evidence, officers needed to dig deep into Ken and Carolyn's personal lives. While police launched their official investigation, Adriana Vosco sat in her shabby Anaheim apartment and sobbed uncontrollably. 
A montage of the night's horrifying events played over and over again in her head. She watched herself grip the steering wheel with white knuckles, following Ken and Carolyn down a dark, winding road. She could still feel the spot where Dennis pressed his gun against her thigh. Worst of all, she remembered Carolyn desperately crying out for help. Instead of doing something, Adriana had sat there and listened, paralyzed by fear. She still didn't fully understand why Dennis had killed Ken instead of just Carolyn. He claimed it was because Ken didn't follow his instructions, but his explanation didn't make any sense. It only confirmed what Adriana already knew. Her ex-boyfriend was highly unstable. But though she realized how dangerous Dennis Earl Godley was, she had no plans to turn him into the police. Before I continue with the discussion of Adriana's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. It isn't surprising that Adriana was hesitant to reach out to law enforcement about her abusive boyfriend. A 2015 survey from the National Domestic Violence Hotline found that half of the victims in their sample didn't contact authorities because they believed it would only make their situations worse. Of the callers who did contact law enforcement, a third felt even less safe after their interaction with police. But while Adriana had no intention of talking to the authorities, three days after Ken and Carolyn's murders, they tracked her down. On November 23rd, Adriana's phone rang. When she heard the gravelly voice on the other line, her heart dropped down to her stomach. A detective from the Orange County Sheriff's Department wanted to talk. Her number was one of the few that had come up in Ken's pager. He wanted to know why. Adriana tried to breathe. She told the officer that she was just Ken's friend. She'd called him because he was repairing her computer. There was a pause on the other end of the line. The detective asked Adriana if she and Ken had ever been lovers. Her pulse quickened. The truth was that their relationship had been complicated. When Adriana met Ken back in 1992, she thought they might actually end up together one day. Of course, that dream didn't mean anything now. But Adriana didn't tell the detective any of that. Instead, she assured him that there was nothing romantic between her and Ken. After the officer hung up, she let out a huge sigh of relief. She hoped the phone call would be the last of it. Hopefully, the police would forget about her and the case would go cold. But wishful thinking wasn't enough to put an end to Adriana's nightmare. Coming up, Detectives close in on Adriana and Dennis. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. 
Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Adriana Vasco spoke to police November 23, 1999, about the murders of Ken and Carolyn Stahl. And following that brief phone call, it seemed like she was in the clear, at least for a while. But a few months later, in February of 2000, law enforcement rang her again. This time, they wanted to set up an official interview. During that meeting, detectives got Adriana to admit to her affair with Ken, but she held firm on everything else. She swore she didn't know about his or Carolyn's deaths. For months afterward, Adriana held her breath whenever the phone rang, always expecting the authorities to be on the other end. But months went by without any more word. Once again, she told herself that they'd forgotten all about her. In reality, she wasn't that lucky. Investigators were spending their time gathering crucial evidence, just not about Adriana. Instead, they were looking into Ken. Ken's friends and family explained that he had been going through a difficult time before he was killed. Four months earlier, he had surgery to address his heart disease. The depression that followed was worse than he'd ever experienced. He lost weight and became so weak that he wasn't able to work. Eventually, he became suicidal. Ken's depression impacted the other people in his life too. His spouse, Carolyn, faced the brunt of it. Their relationship had been strained for a long time, but it was particularly bad in the months following the surgery. Carolyn's sister told police that Ken had started to physically abuse his wife. It's possible there was a connection between Ken's violent behavior and his mood disorder. A 2014 article in the Journal of Emergency Medicine identified severe depression as one of the major risk factors for intimate partner violence. Of course, these findings don't excuse Ken's behavior or suggest that people with depression are inherently violent. But that wasn't the only turmoil investigators found in Ken's personal life. Apparently, he had also cheated on his wife with a woman named Denise. This wasn't new behavior for Ken, but it shed further light on the apparent friction with Carolyn. For her part, Denise confirmed that the anesthesiologist was deeply depressed, and that was just the tip of the iceberg. According to her, Ken absolutely hated his wife, so much so that he regularly talked about wanting to kill her. The information was critical, but it left the police with more questions than answers. Luckily, shortly after speaking with Denise, another important witness stepped forward. Chris Anaya was an electrician and reformed gang member who'd become friendly with Ken after doing some work on his condo. Chris said that initially, Ken seemed like a pretty normal guy. But late one day in 1999, 
his opinion changed dramatically. That evening, Ken asked him to come look at his smoke detector, but when Chris arrived, he couldn't find anything wrong with the device. It seemed like Ken had just called him over because he wanted someone to talk to, and it didn't take much to get him going. Ken confessed that he'd been having issues with his wife. He wanted to know if Chris had any gang connections that could, quote, take care of her. Chris promptly shut the conversation down and never saw Ken again. Chris assumed it had been some kind of bizarre, one-off comment, but when he heard about the murders, he realized there might be a connection. Thanks to his interview, detectives knew that Ken had considered taking a hit out on his wife. Earlier in December of 1999, Ken's sister came upon an unusual transaction while going through his finances. A month before his death, Ken withdrew $20,000 from his checking account. His sister couldn't find a reason for the withdrawal. Whatever Ken had spent the money on, he obviously wanted it to be a secret. The discovery suggested Ken had hired someone to kill Carolyn, but it didn't explain the rest of the story. Ken wound up dead too. Who was responsible? The police had already interviewed everyone they could find, and no one seemed to have any ideas. For a time, it looked like the case was destined to go cold. But nearly a year after the murders, investigators found the crucial missing piece to their puzzle. While combing through Ken's phone records, a detective noticed that he'd made several calls to Adriana Vosco on the date of his death. That didn't line up with Adriana's claim that she'd only spoken to Ken once that day. And what's more, one of those calls had taken place late in the evening, just before the murders. Based on the inconsistencies in her story, investigators revisited Adriana as a potential suspect. So detectives contacted Adriana for another interview. She tried her best to get out of it, but the authorities didn't back down. Eventually, she relented and agreed to come in and talk. It hadn't been a good year for Adriana, and another stressful meeting with the police was bound to make it worse. After Ken died, she'd found a full-time job to support herself and her two children, but even that wasn't enough to pay for her apartment. She lost the place and was forced to move in with her daughter's grandparents. The couple, who we'll call the Martins, were kind people, but they were also connected to Adriana's ex, who we're calling Stan. That relationship had ended after Adriana filed a temporary restraining order against him. Her living situation wasn't ideal, to say the least. On the other hand, at least one good thing had recently happened in Adriana's life. Dennis Godley had gone back to his hometown in North Carolina. His return wasn't the result of some master criminal plan. Rather, it was the last resort for a man who was running out of options. A year earlier, before he killed Ken and Carolyn, Dennis had committed an armed robbery at a convenience store in neighboring Virginia. He was still wanted there for the robbery, but was worried that the police back in California might nab him for murder at any moment. In other words, he was caught between a rock and a hard place, and he knew the prison sentence for armed robbery was a lot lighter than the one for murder. So, 
he reluctantly headed back to North Carolina. For a while, he stayed with friends and family there, but he couldn't run forever. In the summer of 2000, things finally came to a head. At the time, Dennis was staying with his father, Ed. It's not clear if Ed knew what his son had done, but he definitely knew Dennis was in trouble with the law. And if history was any indication, it was only a matter of time before he got caught. So, Ed thought long and hard about the situation and did what he thought was right. On the evening of August 17th, he called the local sheriff's department and told them Dennis was staying with him. He warned the dispatcher that his son was armed. Early the next day, officers ambushed Dennis in Ed's modest ranch home. They had to drag him kicking and screaming out to a waiting squad car. As they pulled out of the driveway, one of the deputies asked Dennis why he was so riled up. After all, he'd been to jail plenty of times before. In response, Dennis remarked that what he'd done in California was going to put him away forever. The deputy raised an eyebrow. He'd looked Dennis up in a national database and hadn't found any outstanding warrants. He had no idea what Dennis was talking about, but all that was about to change. Back in California, Adriana went in for her third interview with the Orange County Sheriff's Department. She didn't know anything about Dennis's arrest. All she knew was that telling the truth would put her in danger. She couldn't risk Dennis going after her children. She decided she would have to lie all over again. She rolled back her shoulders, lifted her head up high, and pushed through the station's cold metal doors. The second she was inside, her cool demeanor crumbled. The pressure and guilt were slowly wearing her down. Adriana's stomach lurched again when she entered the sparse interview room and sat down across from detectives Brian Heaney and Felipe Villalobos. The men were new to the case and had never met her before. They tried to put her at ease by asking her about some of the things she'd discussed with the previously detectives. Adriana told them about her relationship with Ken, including his depression and the difficulties he'd had with his wife. As their conversation progressed, the detectives became more aggressive. They told Adriana that they knew about the phone calls on the night of Ken's murder. They wanted to know what she and Ken had spoken about. They knew it wasn't a broken computer. Adriana insisted she couldn't remember. Still, the detectives pressed on. Eventually, they asked her point blank if she knew who'd killed Ken. They implied she'd been the one to set it all up. Throughout the questioning, Adriana stuck to the one line she could muster. She didn't remember. After two hours of little to no progress, Detectives Heaney and Villalobos switched tactics. They told Adriana they were calling it a night, but first they needed to follow her home. They claimed they were worried about her safety. In reality, they were just interested in meeting the people she lived with. When she arrived back at the Martins' home, the detectives followed Adriana into the house. Stan and his mother were waiting inside. Detectives Heaney and Villalobos took the opportunity to interview the two of them. 
When Villalobos spoke with Stan, he didn't waste any time getting straight to the point. He asked who Stan thought was responsible for killing Ken and Carolyn, and Stan had an answer right away. He gave Villalobos the name of Adriana's most recent boyfriend, the maintenance man at her former apartment complex, Dennis Earl Godley. As soon as the detective heard Dennis's name, alarm bells went off. Adriana had never mentioned that she had a boyfriend at the time of the murders, and there was probably a reason for that. Now, Detectives Villalobos and Heaney needed to figure out what it was. Less than a week later, Adriana trudged through the hospital parking lot toward her car. She'd just finished a shift and wanted nothing more than to crawl into bed and sleep. Before she could leave, however, a man stuck his head out of a nearby vehicle and called out to her. Adriana tensed up. It was Detective Heaney. Villalobos was right beside him in the driver's seat. They'd been waiting for her and insisted they just needed a minute of her time. There was a man at the police station who wanted to ask her some more questions. Before Adriana could say no, Detective Heaney tantalized her. He explained that really, the man at the station just wanted to talk. He might even advocate on her behalf by the time they were done. What Heaney didn't say was that the man was a police officer and he was going to administer a voice stress analysis test. These tests are an increasingly popular tool in police departments in the United States. In theory, they analyze vocal patterns to determine whether or not a person is lying. Although they're advertised as cheaper and easier to use than polygraphs, there's almost no credible evidence that the tests actually work. Around the time that Adriana was being investigated, Dr. David T. Licken, a leading expert in the field of lie detection, called the voice stress analysis test a fraud with zero validity. One study from the National Institute of Justice found them to be no more accurate than flipping a coin. Even so, plenty of police departments support the tests. Detectives Heaney and Villalobos certainly didn't have any qualms about employing one. This might have been because they already knew Adriana was withholding information about Ken and Carolyn's murder. A voice stress analysis test was the perfect way to get her to crack. Detective Heaney smiled reassuringly and told Adriana the whole thing would be over in an hour. He wouldn't even be in the room with her. After several minutes of protesting, she finally agreed and hopped in the police car. But once she got to the station, her heart dropped once again. They'd tricked her. The officer in the examination room wasn't there to have a simple conversation. He was there to break her. The proctor showed Adriana the test that was laid out for her. They told her that each of her truthful answers would produce a neat little bump on the computer screen that looked like a Christmas tree. The first few questions were easy to get a baseline. Is your name Adriana? Is today Tuesday? After each answer, a small bump appeared on the screen. Then the examiner got to question four. Did you know someone was going to kill Ken and Carolyn? Adriana's answer didn't produce anything that resembled a Christmas tree. She gulped 
she was caught. When the test was over, the examiner explained what Adriana already knew. She had failed. It looked like Detectives Heaney and Villalobos would have a few more questions for her after all. The two men re-entered the room and picked up where they left off the last time. For hours, they grilled Adriana about Dennis, asking how she'd met him and how he'd met Ken. Adriana could feel her back against the wall, but she gave the same responses as before. She couldn't remember anything and wanted to go home. The detectives told her that they could protect her and her family. She just needed to be honest. Still, nothing. If Heaney and Villalobos wanted to crack this case, they had to get some real answers from her and fast. So they revealed the ace up their sleeve. Adriana was already wanted for traffic violations. As such, they technically had the power to arrest her then and there. Upon hearing this, Adriana clammed up and finally asked for a lawyer. Detective Heaney said she could have one, but told her she would be sent straight to jail afterward. Adriana considered her miserable options and agreed to keep talking without an attorney. Maybe if she cooperated, she reasoned, the authorities would help her down the line. Yet more time passed with no end in sight for the interrogation. Eventually, Adriana started asking for a lawyer again, and the more she tried to exercise her right to an attorney, the more excuses she heard in response. The detectives told her it was too late and they'd get her one in the morning, or they said they'd call one up right after they were all done talking. Eventually, Adriana stopped speaking altogether and the detectives dropped the act. They cuffed her and sent her straight to a concrete cell. Coming up, detectives meet the man who pulled the trigger. Now, back to the story. It had been nearly a year since Ken and Carolyn Stahl were murdered, and investigators still hadn't found the culprit. Their only remaining lead was Adriana Vasco, and despite hours of investigation, she kept her cards close to her vest. It wasn't all bad news, however. Detectives Heaney and Villalobos hadn't gotten everything they wanted from Adriana, but the night had still been a success. Most importantly, she had confirmed that her ex-boyfriend, Dennis Godley, had known Ken Stahl. This information alone was enough for authorities to obtain a search warrant for her storage unit. There, they found two crucial pieces of evidence. One was a phone record that showed Adriana had placed several calls to a number in Greenville, North Carolina, just after Heaney and Villalobos contacted her. The next was a photograph of Adriana standing beside a tall man with a dark goatee. It was the same man who'd popped up in a police report from October 1999. He'd been in the passenger seat when Adriana was arrested for allegedly drunk driving. On an employment application, he'd listed a previous address in Greenville, North Carolina. Bingo. With this information in hand, detectives reached out to authorities on the East Coast and learned Dennis was serving time in Suffolk, Virginia. In November of 2000, they flew down to see him. 
the man they met in the Tidewater Regional Jail, recited his story as if he'd rehearsed it. Yes, Dennis told them. He'd lived in Anaheim and yes, he'd briefly dated Adriana, but he adamantly denied being anywhere near the Ortega Highway on the night of the murders. Detectives questioned him for hours, trying to poke holes in his story, but Dennis didn't change his tune. Eventually, the officers accepted that they weren't going to get anything else out of him. That meant Adriana was still the weakest link in their case. They decided to do whatever it took to get a confession out of her instead. Shortly after they returned to California, the detectives arranged to meet with the family Adriana was living with, the Martins. They had something urgent to discuss. They informed the Martins that they'd tracked down Dennis. He was locked up, but he probably had dangerous friends on the outside. Since the family was taking care of Adriana's daughter, they were a potential target if Dennis ever wanted to get his revenge. The officers warned the family that they would need to take some extra precautions to ensure their safety. When it came time for the men to leave, the Martins looked thoroughly shaken up. It was exactly as Heaney and Villalobos hoped. They didn't have to wait long for their conversation to have the desired effect. That very afternoon, Detective Heaney got an earnest call from Adriana. She'd spoken with Mrs. Martin and heard about Dennis. She was a wreck just thinking about it. Although the detectives likely knew Adriana's fears about Dennis weren't founded in logic, he was locked up and being carefully monitored around the clock, they didn't care. They used her intense anxiety about him to their advantage. Heaney told Adriana she was right to be concerned. Dennis was a real threat. He even claimed that Dennis had threatened any witnesses to Ken and Carolyn's murders. Adriana crumbled. It was like her worst fears had come to life. She was terrified Dennis would find a way to kill her to keep her from talking. She decided her only hope of staying alive was to come clean, for real this time. The detective sat down with Adriana that evening. She told them everything. When she was done, Adriana felt as if a burden had been lifted from her shoulders. It felt good to finally let go of her terrible secrets. She was comforted that the detectives had told her they would protect her family. When she reminded Heaney about his promises, he responded with vague assertions about his obligation to her. Adriana said goodbye to the detectives and asked what happened next. Heaney gave her an uncomfortable look. She was being charged with murder. Adriana felt betrayed. She put her trust in detectives Heaney and Villalobos and now she'd been burned. If she'd been given a lawyer when she first asked for one, maybe she never would have talked. Once she finally had an attorney, it was too little too late. At her trial in March of 2001, Adriana's lawyer argued the detectives had abused their power. They'd isolated Adriana from her family and made her feel as if she didn't have other options. They'd terrorized her, then offered her deceptive promises of protection. It was a compelling argument and the interview transcripts spoke for themselves. 
The judge threw out Adriana's confession before the trial even began. Unfortunately for Adriana, though, Heaney and Villalobos weren't the only people she had confessed to. After the charges were announced, she'd also talked to a reporter for the Orange County Register. Most likely, Adriana had no idea at that point that she might get her confession thrown out in court. Since she didn't have a lawyer at the time, she may have thought that getting her side of the story out there was a good thing. But instead, it was the final nail in her coffin. If it hadn't been for that damning interview, the prosecution might have dropped the charges due to lack of evidence, but the trial went forward as planned. The proceedings began in earnest on November 12, 2002, and the prosecution came in guns blazing. They painted Adriana as a street-smart, manipulative seductress who had an equal hand in the murders with Dennis. The defense didn't try to refute the narrative, but they did attempt to explain Adriana's fraught mental state during the murders. To do so, they brought in Dr. Nancy Kayser Boyd, a clinical psychologist from UCLA. Boyd examined Adriana and determined she was suffering from battered women's syndrome. Although the doctor wasn't allowed to comment on Adriana's specific experiences, she did talk about the syndrome in general. She explained the concept of learned helplessness and how it can cause a person to feel powerless against their abuser. The testimony was informative, but may have seemed disconnected from the case. If the defense really wanted to make an impact, they were going to have to do something almost unheard of in criminal law. Adriana would have to take the stand herself. Starting on November 19th, Adriana gave two days of heartbreaking testimony. She spoke about being sexually abused as a child and running away from home at 16. She discussed her multitude of abusive relationships and how difficult the trauma had been to deal with. Finally, she described the crippling anxiety she experienced after the murders. In the end, however, it wasn't enough to sway the jury. They believed that it didn't matter how afraid Adriana was of Dennis. In the eyes of the law, she was guilty. On November 25th, Adriana Vasco was convicted of first-degree murder of Carolyn Oppie Stahl and the second-degree murder of Dr. Kenneth Stahl. She would spend the rest of her life in prison. Dennis's verdict came over a year and a half later. In May 2004, prosecutors announced that they wouldn't seek the death penalty against him. Shortly after that, he entered a guilty plea. His lawyer claimed that he did so in order to spare the victim's families the pain of another trial. But it's possible that Dennis simply didn't feel he had a chance of winning. With Adriana's testimony in the prosecution's back pocket, there was just too much evidence stacked against him. In the end, he was sentenced to life without the chance of parole. For the rest of her life, Adriana Vasco will have to live with her role in Ken and Carolyn Stahl's murders. But Adriana was also put through incredible trauma. She and Carolyn Stahl were victims of domestic violence, an epidemic that impacts over 12 million people in the US every single year. No two experiences look exactly the same, 
but Carolyn and Adriana had more in common than they ever knew. Both were manipulated by men whose weapons of choice were violence and intimidation, and both women lost something at the hands of those men. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with another episode. For more information on Adriana Vasco and Dennis Earl Godley, amongst the many sources we used, we found Deadly Mistress by Michael Fleeman extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.